Okay. Yay. Well done, uh, Byron and the worship team. Um, I just want to, uh, you know, commend them. They uh, have to lead you without drums, which is already tough. And then with uh, multiple rhythms going on out there um, for half of the service. But it's such a joy to see the kids coming up and participating in our service. And you guys led well this morning. You led us into the Lord's presence. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I've just been so encouraged this morning as I've listened to Bryce and, and Byron and um, Pierre. Um, there's a, a thread that's going to come through in the, the sermon as well. And the message this morning, that the title is Unchained Gospel. I really want to encourage you, this mission week, don't let it pass you by. I've looked at the program, I've looked at uh, Nikki's planning. Um, it is exceptional. I think it is going to be incredibly special. And mark those dates, 12th to the 21st of May. Come along to as many of those sessions as you can. I believe God's going to stir our hearts for the gospel and for missions. And I think the sermon hopefully will have a part to play in that. So we finished our Easter series. We found ourselves back in Philippians. Paul is writing from a prison cell, probably in Rome. And the Philippians are worried about him. They are not used to seeing him like this. Their prayers for his release are not being answered. Paul is stuck, and he has been for a long, long time. And Paul wants them to know that he's doing well. It's written very much like a letter when someone asks you, how are you, you know, and you respond in the beginning of the letter, you say, no, I'm doing well. And he writes from a place of joy and thanksgiving despite his circumstances and with a growing confidence and assurance that God will continue to bring this church, the Philippians, to spirit, spiritual maturity in Christ. And he rejoices at the growth that he can see in them already from the very first day as they've partnered in the gospel with him. This is a healthy church, and he rejoices before the Lord as he considers them and prays for them and is writing to them. Today, we're going to see that Paul has good reason to rejoice, not just because of what is happening in Philippi, but also because of what is happening in Rome. And our text is Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Please turn there in your Bibles. It will be on the screen. Um, but if you've got your Bible, um, you can... Uh, read it in front of you as well. And uh, uh, just before we start reading that, I walked out of the offices having printed my notes and uh, Mark K saw me and he was like, oh, that's too many notes. Um, and uh, I said, don't worry, I printed it twice. <laughs> so I have, you know, I'm setting myself up for failure here a little bit, but I am intending to finish before half past nine. Um, and uh, I only have, I usually have eight pages. I've got five. So, so those of you that like to wait for me to get nearer the end before you really zone in, it's going to be shorter today, so, so lock in from the start, okay? Right, so Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
My first point this morning is a powerful point, and if you've got a pen and paper, write this down. Um, God uses all circumstances to advance the gospel. Paul had been longing to be in Rome for many years, but he wanted to be there as a free man preaching the gospel on the streets, as he had done in many other cities. Finally, he is in Rome, but not as a free man. No, Paul is a prisoner chained and heavily restricted. I'm going to give you detail on, on what those restrictions are when we get to the second point. And how many times must he have prayed that God would release him so that he can preach the gospel freely and see this gospel flourish uh, in the capital of the empire? How many times has he heard a no? How many times has the church been praying for his release? Lord, it has to be your will to release your champion so that he can preach the gospel in Rome. We pray for it. If you're waiting for us to agree, we agree. Release him, Lord. Amen. It doesn't happen. And the Philippian church and Paul know something about praying for something that is in line with God's will, okay, and not getting, well, I should say that we perceive to be in line with God's will and not getting the answer that they want. As many of you are sitting out there, you've got great prayers that you're praying. Lord, would you heal this person? You will get glory from this testimony when this person gets healed. Lord, would you save this person? I've been praying for them for for years and years and years, you can uh, do the impossible. There's nothing you can't do. Lord, we're struggling with finances. Um, you, you've got promises in your word where you say that you, you will provide. We need a breakthrough here. We're struggling. We pray for our country. I'm sure many of us pray regularly for this country. Lord, it's uh, in a bad state but it's not outside of your power, come and heal this land. And we can sit here this morning, I'm sure every one of us has unanswered prayer, that we wonder, what is God doing here? And it's important when you read this text that you see that's there. It's in the text. Paul's not saying it overtly. He's not going, I'm really struggling with this. But he is stuck in a prison cell, and the church has been praying, and there is a no. And I am sure Paul has also prayed that God might release him. We don't see that, but I think it's there. Paul and the Philippians know something about dealing with unanswered prayer. The Philippians are wrestling with this question, and Paul answers it. I love this answer. He says, you may think that what has happened to me has hindered the gospel. That would be the obvious answer. The person who's the best at sharing the gospel, who's planted the most churches, who's preached in the most cities, who God has used to just explode the gospel in the Gentile world, is stuck in one place and can't get out. Surely that is hindering the gospel. You may think that what has happened to me has hurt the church, discouraged her. Actually, in a surprising turn of events, he uses the word 
really, I'll read it to you here. It could also be read, actually. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really or actually, which means the opposite of what you are thinking, served to advance the gospel. It's an incredible statement from Paul. He is chained in one place, but this gospel is unchained. This great defeat has only served to advance the gospel. Is he making this up? Is he deluded? He's going to give us facts in the next verse as to exactly, he can put, this isn't just abstract thought out there in the, the stratosphere. He's got physical evidence to back up this incredible statement. In this, we see the wonderful sovereign hand of God using all things to further his plans and purposes. He cannot be stopped. This gospel cannot be stopped. Whenever the enemy tries to slow it down, he inadvertently helps. Think about that. Even Satan, because he is limited in knowledge, only God is all-knowing. If Satan had all the knowledge, he would be far less involved than what he is. But because he's limited in knowledge and he doesn't understand everything that God is doing and how he's working, Satan often tries to get involved and slow us down and stop things. And what actually ends up happening, because God is all-powerful and all-knowing and in control, God flips the thing around and it ends up accelerating the very thing that Satan's trying to stop. We see this even with Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Um, they're sitting around a table eating food, and Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me. And um, then he uh, points to Judas, and he says, what you're about to do, go and do it quickly. And it says, Satan entered him. Satan wants to be directly involved in stopping Jesus. And for once, because he can only do what God allows. We see that in Job. He has to approach God and say, I want to, you know, I'm going to show you. This guy's going to turn his back on you. I want to do stuff to him. And God will say, you, you can do this and this and this, but only go this far. And then Satan does it. Satan has been after Jesus from the beginning. God lets him have a, a bit of time with him in the desert. Satan fails. There's a more opportune time that comes on the night in Gethsemane and this night. This is God uh, uh, pulling back from Jesus and saying, Okay, Satan, now's the time. Do what you want to do. And Satan can't help himself because he doesn't often get a little chance to, to punch God. All right? You know, God's all-powerful, so here's a chance I can actually hurt him in his, um, uh, this uh, human uh, person of Jesus is God, but I can actually get at him. And Satan can't help himself. He doesn't have the capacity to sit there and think, wait, God's the one who always outsmarts me. Everything he wants to happen always ends up happening. If God's telling me, go and do this, then maybe I am about to make a grave error. He doesn't figure that out. He can't help it. He enters Judas. He gets Judas to betray um, Jesus. And Satan's goal is to kill Jesus. He doesn't know what's up with Jesus. He knows Jesus is a problem for him. He knows he can't get Jesus to sin. 
And you know, he can't get Jesus to turn his back on God. But if he can get Jesus to be removed from the picture, then maybe whatever God is planning down here with Jesus, I can stop that. And so Satan puts Jesus on the cross to kill him to stop God's plans. And we know the story well, that all along it was God's plan that Jesus would die on a cross. And Satan only ends up accelerating God's plan by getting involved. It looks like a defeat for the gospel. It looks like a defeat for, the, uh, for God's people. The disciples aren't celebrating on Friday. They're not celebrating on Saturday. But they do start to celebrate on Sunday. And we've been celebrating ever since. Satan was involved. He tried to stop Jesus. He tried to hinder him. It didn't work. Now he's trying to stop Paul. Paul is faithfully preaching this gospel. And Satan can discourage most people from preaching the gospel. But Paul seems to have a, a unique capacity and ability to just not care and just go for it. Right? So he is sur fully surrendered and sold out for the purpose of, I'm going to live my life for Jesus, and for the sake of the gospel. All he thinks about is the gospel. That's what he's thinking about all the time, and it's why no matter what situation he's in, no matter what opportunities come his way, he will turn everything into an opportunity for the gospel, even this very uh, opportunity. Here. And so t Satan is tired of him. He wants done with him, and it only happens as God allows it. You can't exit this earth before God gives you... Uh, permission for that to happen. And so the best Satan can do at this point is chain him up. And he's hindered. And he's finally got Paul locked up. I can get it. If I can just get him to shut up and be in one place, maybe we can slow this thing down because actually this gospel's done a lot of damage in a very short space of time. Jesus died 30 years ago. In 30 years, it's gone to the whole known world. And people are getting saved in their thousands. If you're in Satan's kingdom, C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters so you could get a, a picture of what it's like from the demon's perspective. You're sitting in Satan's kingdom and you own everyone. And suddenly something happens in 30 AD on a Friday. And then on a Sunday, one of them's gone. And then um, more keep coming and leaving. And suddenly the percentages, you had 100% of the, the monopoly. Now you're down to what? And shrinking. So we need to get this guy in a prison cell because God won't let us kill him. And we're going to uh, shut him up over there. And again, logically, you'd go, well, that should work. That should slow things down. Paul goes, no. It hasn't worked. It's only accelerated the gospel. I almost, I don't, I'm being a bit facetious here, but I almost feel sorry for God's opponents. Because he cannot be stopped. He uses all things to advance his purposes, even when things are going terribly wrong. Actually, in God's grand picture, they are going right. Even when things are at their worst, in God's grand picture, that's what Paul's saying over here. This looks like we are failing. This looks like we're in trouble. We are not in trouble. Actually, this is working out perfectly for what we want to achieve. The gospel advances. It cannot be stopped. It's unchained. It actually seems that the more pressure you put on it and the more limited you make God's people, the more fruitful they end up being. 
I sometimes wonder if, great, if Satan's greatest trick isn't what he's doing with us in the West. Letting us have comfort and freedom and not applying as much pressure. But I want you to remember this thought. When things are going terribly wrong, actually, in God's grand picture, they are going right. I'm going to give you an example from my life. When I was 17, I was worshiping and praying for my mom's salvation. I'm sure I've told you this story before, but I'm going to tweak it for this point. And while it was summer camp and I was praying for her and I just felt a release. I'm sure some of you have experienced that where you're praying for something and even though you don't have it physically answered, you almost sense it's answered spiritually, like God said, yes. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, I hear your prayer, I will save your mom. It took 17 years. She only gave her life when I was 34. My brother and dad came to faith when I was 20. We waited patiently for the promise to be fulfilled for my mom. And then when I was 26, Steve got terribly ill with an illness that he carries to this day. It's an awful, awful illness. And we have prayed many times that God would take it away for good. He has done miracles there, but we want it gone for good. And so far, the answer is no. One day, my mom and I were chatting. Steve had been sick for about eight years. I realized while we were speaking that she no longer spoke about God in a way that he wasn't real or good. Every other time I'd ever heard my mom speak about God, it was always from a point of atheism, he can't be real, or have you noticed that with atheists? They say he's not real, but, but then they get really angry with what isn't real. <laughs> or he's not good. And, and suddenly we're having a conversation. My mom's talking about God, and I can hear she, she believes. And I didn't even have to ask her if she believed. I actually asked her, when did you believe? I didn't even say, do you believe? I could tell she believed. I was shocked. I was stunned. I felt in that moment, seminal moment, Lord, this woman believes. Mom, when did you believe? And she said, when you came to faith, I didn't think much of it. You were the good boy. You started going to church. So much for how much my life changed. Huh? <laughs> um, when Steve was the troublemaker, when he came to faith, that gave me pause because his life flipped around. So she didn't believe yet, but it, she's asking questions now. And then she says this. This is her testimony. I wish she would share it more, but she, um, uh, sometimes I feel like God uh, uses me to share other people's testimonies. Um, she said that when Steve got sick, she thought, here it is. No one can carry this thing that he's got and not turn around and shake their fist at God and blame God for what's happened to him. He's going to turn back. And when he didn't do that, isn't it interesting? It wasn't, she wasn't thinking, God, if you'll heal him, I'll believe in you. She was thinking, this is the moment we see if this is real. When you give up, when you turn your back, when you agree with me that he is not good, 
and Steve has held onto his faith. And she said she looked at that and she went, God's real. And I believe. What if God answered my prayer for my mom to be saved by letting my brother get sick? I don't think God causes sickness, but I think he allows things for his purposes of extend, extending his glory. And I can't answer this for Steve because he's the one who has to suffer and it is awful. But one day, I know we're going to stand, the three of us with my dad, four of us in glory. We're still praying for my youngest brother. But the four of us are going to stand in glory forever, worshiping together. And what we've been through here won't matter at all. Because the gospel advances in all circumstances. So this morning, church, what are your circumstances? How desperate are they? How hopeless are they? The very thing I thought would turn my mom away from God for good, he used to advance the gospel in my family. He can use your circumstances to advance the gospel too. I've got a quote on the screen over here. This guy puts it much better than me. Um, I won't pronounce his name very well. Wust, I guess, says, the things which happened unto me are literally, this is quoting Paul in this text, the things dominating me. The words which happened are not in the Greek text and are not needed. Nothing ever just happens to the saint. Things either come directly from God or they reach us from some other source by his permissive will. Paul assures the Philippian saints that his circumstances have not only failed to curtail his missionary work, but they have advanced it. And not only that, they have brought about a pioneer advance in regions where otherwise it would not have gone. It is so in our very lives. I don't know if it comes out bold on the screen, but it's bold on my page, so if you've got a pen, make this bolder. Our God-ordained or God-permitted circumstances are used of God to provide for a pioneer advance of the gospel in our Christian service. God uses all circumstances to advance the gospel. My second point this morning is not only does this God control the, the circumstances, every circumstance, but he also controls the people he places around you and me. Every single person placed around us is for the purpose of advancing the gospel. Families, especially, you didn't choose your family, God did. Why? God chose for me to be with Mike and Lynn Wood. God chose for Steve to be my brother and Jason to be my brother. The first place the gospel went was my family. Friends, work colleagues, all these situations. The, uh, last week I spoke about how our, even our habits, the things we love to do, our passions, those are gospel opportunities if We'll let our eyes be open to see that God will even surround you with people who like the same stuff as you so that you will be switched on to sharing faith 
And that beautiful story Pierre shared earlier fits perfectly here. A woman using her skill, working with the blind, to be in a, a close companionship and going sovereignly, this family is the one I need to reach the gospel with because they're here now. What if we thought like that? What if every consultation or business deal or if you're running a guest house, customer, what if your classroom as a teacher, what if every single relationship that was brought into your life was sovereignly positioned by the one who controls all of it? And that's what's happening to Paul here. This is what Paul's saying. Paul is very practical. He's not being delusional with his hopes for the gospel, but he provides practical um, evidence for why this gospel is advancing. He says, it has reached the whole imperial God. The only people Paul sees is the uh, imperial God. The way it works, he's trapped in a small cell, he has a reputation for escaping. He is now in the capital city. So it's one thing to escape from West Bank prison. It's another thing to escape from um, uh, your capital prison. Okay? So Rome will not suffer the embarrassment of a, a prisoner escaping in their city. So how do they do that? They chain Paul up to a god where... The chains are 18 inches away. And that God, that imperial God, gets replaced every six hours, which is good news for them because you can only handle Paul for the first 20 minutes maybe. And what does Paul do with that? He goes, God is bringing you to me. I can't get out onto the streets and do what I want to do. But God is bringing you to me, and in six hours' time, he's going to bring someone else to me, and in six hours' time, he's going to bring someone else to me. And I ask this question, who's chained to who? Because out on the streets, Paul is free to preach the gospel, but you're also free to walk in and walk out. You can leave whenever you want. These poor Roman soldiers had no chance they had to sit and listen to Paul for six hours. And you know what I think their conversations were afterwards? How many sessions did it take for you to give your life to Christ? Three for me. Paul says it's gone throughout the whole imperial God. When I first read that, this is why it's lovely to do research. In my stupidity, I think, oh, is that 20 people? You know, what is, how, how big is an imperial God? 9,000 uh, Roman soldiers. This gospel is flourishing in an area it wouldn't have probably gotten to if Paul wasn't where he is. He's showing Paul and us that you cannot chain this gospel. It is powerful and it spreads wherever it is shared. We think a lot about, and we should, how do we get out there more? Which is why we're going to do a missions week where we are going to walk out. We go to Lesotho. We've got to get out there more. 
the thing we don't think about enough, and I'm trying to bring your attention to you here, God's already helping you even when you aren't going out anywhere. He's bringing them to you. And it is sovereign. It's a, an appointment. And we do need help. Like, I'm, I know it's hard to, uh, if you're a lawyer, I'm just I'm, I'm seeing all of you in your jobs, and I'm trying to imagine you do this. You've got a job to do, but I'm looking at you going, somewhere in this moment with this relationship, God might open a small gap for you if you're looking for it. And I think he'll do that more often for all of us if we're looking for it. That woman that Pierre spoke about has trained herself to look for the opportunity and to take it. So, as I move to my last point, we've got circumstances we can't control happening to all of us. God controls all of them. And he can use even the worst ones to extend his kingdom and advance the gospel. We've got people placed around us, all of us. We don't control that. God does. And the main thing he wants from you, believer, is this, that you would speak about who he is. You can't get the gospel to someone's heart. We heard last year. I love this. But there's a lot of work to do to even get it here. Our job is to get the gospel onto our lips. That's the work. That's not easy. So you've got to be uh, committed to that. That's not just going to happen. You've got to decide. You've got to be goal-orientated around it. I am going to speak the gospel. I am going to share my faith. That's the only work you have to do. The moment you are speaking the gospel, you've won. Because even in its imperfections, even in its weaknesses, God is able to use it. It's his work to do the rest. He's the one who takes it to the heart. You could preach the gospel perfectly and the person doesn't get saved. You could preach it terribly and the person gets saved. The person gets saved because of what God's doing. All he wants from you is to get it onto your lips. I went to a country to learn Arabic. We sat in a classroom for three hours. It was terrible. It was the most soul-destroying three hours of the day. You couldn't understand what the teacher was saying. You just felt like an epic failure. And then the goal was, whatever you learned, whatever little minuscule thing you learned from three hours of one, 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 not understanding anything, you then had to go out and use it. You had to use what you'd learned. So Anita's a bit more bookish than me. She would sit at home and with the books and study and, you know, work through the lessons better. That way, I would, and to my advantage, it's a male dominated culture, so Anita's not allowed to walk around on the streets. I can. Anita has to try and get into homes where the ladies are in the homes, but I'm going out onto the streets doing my passions. I'm playing soccer. Luckily, back then, I, I was still thin, and um, I could run. Um, so I'm playing soccer with guys, building relationships, and all the time, the whole goal, Mark, is get what you learned onto your tongue. Say it. If you don't say it, you lose it. As I stand here in front of you, I've got, I haven't checked these studies in our, for a while, but I think I've got 10,000 English vocab words in my brain. And I think three to 4,000 are active on the tongue. So that means that 
I will read and listen to things, and other people will use words I never use, but I do understand those words. They're understandable to me. They're in my brain. Afrikaans, I'm at about 2,000 passive words. I can follow most conversations when we go visit my wife and her family in Pretoria. Uh, it's not easy. Okay? And, and they don't understand that there's this little English, um, you know, enclave in South Africa still where we hold tight to, we don't learn Afrikaans. We're just going to pretend that's okay. Okay? And then I get none of it on my tongue. None of it's here. It's all up here. And I can understand all the conversation, but I can't speak it. I've, I haven't put myself into the position to speak it. I've got about 500 Arabic words up here, maybe a bit more, but most of them are gone, maybe it's less now, and they were all up over here. The gospel is in your mind, you do understand it, you listen to it, you understand it, you've given your life to Christ. Where you've got to get better, church, is putting it here, and that means you break it a little bit. That's how you use anything. The first time I spoke Arabic to someone, they said, you're breaking Arabic, and I was. And I didn't mind because I knew the only way to get it right was to use it. And if you want to be better at sharing your faith and, and sharing the gospel, then you've got to use it a few times and, and work out the, the kinks. The first time I shared my faith uh, was in Mozambique. The guy gave his life to Christ. Praise the Lord. I didn't share it perfectly well. This is how bad I was. I still, I've never shared this part of the story. At the end, the translator goes, give him a verse to back up what you've said. Blank. Now, I've just told you Jesus loves you. I've told you he died on a cross for you. I've told you your sins are, are forgiven if you'll surrender your life to Christ. Do you want to surrender your life to Christ? Yes. Give him one verse to back it up. Click, click. And so the translator, in his love, realized that I was floundering. And then he, he read Romans 10, verse 9. And you know what I did from that uh, failed moment? I got better. I went, that's the verse I'm using every time now. Thank you. You've just trained me, translator. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. It's never left me from the moment I first didn't have anything to say. At the mo key moment, of, I actually do think it's probably good to have at least one verse in your back pocket if someone wants to ask where you get that in Scripture. We've got to get it onto our mouths. The last point is this. Not only does God use circumstances and bring people to you for the sake of extending the, and advancing the gospel, this is my most encouraging point, is we don't have to do this alone. God uses what happens to us to inspire others to advance the gospel. There is a second surprising turn of events in the passage. Not only is God literally chaining people to Paul so that he can share the gospel with them, but others are inspired by his imprisonment to share their faith as well. This is also the opposite of what you would have expected to happen in the situation. You would have expected that when the best preacher and the most confident preacher gets pounded for 
doing what he, the, everyone else is telling him, you shouldn't be doing that, we're going to arrest you now and put you in prison, you would think the logical thing to follow would be that his followers and the people next to him would go, ooh, we're scared of that. They're not just using words now, they, they have acted. You would think that would cause people to be quiet. Again, the opposite happens. And this might be surprising, but I've got a few examples for you of why I think it shouldn't be. And I'll go to sport because that's my passion. When I watch rugby and soccer, when a player gets red carded, whoever's left on the team often fights harder than they did before. The gap left by one player missing and not being there means instead of us doing that human selfish thing of he's yours, means all of us are looking at each other going, we've all got to do more work. We can't just cover one man in front of us. All of us have to do more work than we've done before. And coaches have often said, I hate it when the other team loses a player and they go to 10 men in soccer. I hate it. Because they become a wall that you can't get through. Before that, it was actually a game. We went backwards and forwards. After that, this 10 were galvanized because one went missing. There's something in human psychology when we lose something important to us that was helping us, instead of actually crawling into the corner, something rises up in us where we go, we're going to fight even harder than we, than we ever did before. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is that the opposing team loses a player. Everyone else raises their game. They increase their effort to make up for the loss. What was supposed to be damaging ends up galvanizing them. It would seem that the sinful mentality of I will leave it to someone else is challenged when we see the gap that someone's presence leaves. The Christians in Rome know that Paul has been wanting to preach the gospel in Rome. Finally, he is here, but now he can't do what he has longed to do. If he can't preach the gospel here, I will. And we've also gotten past another kind of mentality where I'll come with you, Paul. I'll watch you. Those of you who accept Bryce's challenge and go with Bryce. Bryce might be kinder to you. If you come with me, I will go once, just once. Once as an example, and then everyone with me goes before I go again. Because it shouldn't be this, that we go with the person who's good at doing it, and the people go with Paul, and Paul's preaching, and, and people are getting saved, and we're there, and we're giving him juice and water, and, you know, cheering him on and praying for him. Um, and, and actually, at the end of that, our, our response is, oh, I can't do it like you. You've got to do that, not me. That's the wrong mentality. I've been on the streets in Sunny Ridge. We started a soup kitchen. We then said, we don't just want to feed soup, we want to share the gospel. So about 20 people from, there were only about 40 people in the church, about 20 people of us were there on the streets. But now they're all new and wanting to learn, and I've done this before. So I went up to the one guy, and, and this uh, lady comes with me, and I share my faith with him. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't, I didn't think it was like that special. Nothing happened. I just shared it, and he went thanks and left. And, and then I turned to her, hoping that I had inspired her. You know what she said to me? Oh, I can't do it like you, Mark. Oh, no, you're really good at this. I'm just going to. It's the wrong mentality. The mentality should be, I, in my way, 
am going out there and doing this. And I'm not going to do it like Mark, and I'm not going to do it like Bryce, and I'm not going to do it like Paul, but Paul can't get there, so it doesn't matter. I've got to go. And suddenly this church starts getting active on the streets of Rome, Paul says in this last verse. And most of the brothers, by the way, that word brothers is uh, brothers and sisters. don't know why I'm talking away from the mic. My apologies. Brothers and sisters. Most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's not talking about the Philippian church. He's talking about the Roman church. And you've got to understand some context over here. The Roman church is, the Roman church, the Roman city, the capital of the empire, is led by a madman, a person who has lost his mind, an incredible dictator, a terrible, terrible person who many in history look at and say he's the greatest fulfillment of the Antichrist we've seen so far. It wasn't Hitler. It was Nero of Rome in the first century. He would lynch Christians on poles and set them on fire and use them as uh, to shine the way in the darkness when you want to walk down the street. He had lost his mind, and he was powerful. You couldn't, there was no democracy. There was no talking back to him or straightening him out. And this church on the streets of Rome having been quite quiet up until now in fear, because I think you've got good reason to be afraid, have their champion finally coming to them that they're hoping is going to get to them and encourage their church, and he can't even get to the church uh, homes where they gather. He can't get to them. He's stuck in a prison cell. But they look at that, what's happened to him. They find confidence in the Lord, and suddenly this Roman church is out on the streets preaching the gospel. They've gained confidence to preach the gospel in one of the most dangerous settings we see in history. And Paul, this is what he's always longed for. He doesn't want, he wants the gospel to go out, not from his lips. His lips are one pair of lips. He wants the gospel to go out from all Christians. And he starts to see that happening in Rome at the end of his ministry while he's stuck in prison. God shows him, I can do it. My greatest hope, I've been saying to this church for a while, and I'm going to round some of these thoughts out. I do believe the Spirit's going to be poured out on you in a way we haven't seen before. And I don't think it looks like rolling around or singing and dancing or any of that other stuff. And I'm not trying to belittle it. What people ask me, what do I think that means? I think that means what we've just read here. You become bold, confident in Christ, and we start to see a church where everyone is sharing their faith on the streets and in their homes and in their workspaces, and it becomes what we are known for because the Spirit has been poured out upon us, and that is what fullness of the Spirit looks like to me in my mind. This, what Paul's getting to here with this Philippian church, but also even with the Roman church. So, what can you and I learn from this? It doesn't matter what happens to us. God can use everything that happens to us to further his kingdom. What are you going through today? What prayer remains unanswered? Is there something where you are asking God what he's doing in a given situation? Here's what you do. You're saying, give me something to do. 
Okay, here's what you do. You ask God to give you his eyes to help you see how he can get glory in this thing. That's the beautiful thing for Paul here. Paul is exceptionally close to Jesus, and this is what it gives him this advantage. He can sit in a dark cell, eating slop off the floor, chained to someone, and not feel sorry for himself, but God's given him his eyes. And he's going, wow, Lord, look at what you're doing in these soldiers. Look at what you're doing on the streets of Rome. Look at how your kingdom's advancing, which is the thing I care about more than anything. My life's unimportant compared to that. And that's where the joy is coming from. Some of you in your circumstances need God's eyes. What are you doing, Lord? And how can I get excited about your kingdom at this time, not just my own stuff that's close to me? How can this advance your gospel, Lord? There's a word for advance here. It's prokopto. It means, the Greek always takes likes to take two, uh, a prefix and a suffix. Pro means to um, go forward. I hope I'm not getting them the wrong way around. Pro, that makes sense to me. Pro is going forward, and copto means cut. So in other words, advance means to cut forward. That means advance is not this happy run through free air. Yay, having a great run today. Advance means to cut your way through jungle to go forward. That means your life is meant to be uh, fronted by trouble. It's meant to have something in front of you that you've, this gospel's got to cut its way through. It's not that you've done something wrong because you're going through trouble. It's that this is how the gospel advances. When we were in Lesotho, um, everything was going perfect, um, which is a problem. On the, on the first day, we got there without any problems. I've never had that before. We arrived. We didn't have a breakdown. We didn't have a problem with the tires. We didn't have something go wrong. Someone didn't lose their passport. And millions of things go wrong all the time. Nothing went wrong. We arrived in Lesotho easily. Then the next morning, I pick up my Bible and I read adver about adversity. And I go, Lord, there's, there's no adversity. And then this thought comes to mind, is the enemy even concerned about us? Is he looking at this Lesotho team and going, don't worry about them, guys. Nothing good is going to happen from this Sterling Baptist 15 guys that are showing up here. Nothing. They're not going to talk about Jesus. There's going to be no advancing of the gospel. Let's put our resources somewhere else. So I pray, like, Lord, oh, Lord, are we, are we on track? We go to the, um, have a devotion. We just finished breakfast. I get all the guys together. One of them even says, it might have even been Nathan, I can't remember. But one of them says, does it usually go this smoothly? And I looked at him and I said, it never goes this smoothly. And suddenly someone comes running down the hill screaming, holding a phone. Michael's stuck on the mountain somewhere, lost. We only have one vehicle left. Devin climbs into the vehicle with a few other uh, sane adults who are, now at least have a vehicle. There's just me, Nathan, and Francois left, three, uh, two really young men and a uh, young at heart, um, with no um, car, with a young guy driving through the mountains to find a, the experienced guy who's lost. And as Devin drives off with Dave and whoever else went, I think it was Warren, I looked at these two young guys and I smiled and I said, now we're on track. Now we're on track. Don't be discouraged by what's going wrong, guys. 
This gospel advances by cutting forward. What about sovereign appointments you can't get away from? What if sharing your faith was not so much about going out and finding people, though we should? Please don't hear that we shouldn't do that. We should certainly do that. What if God is actually bringing them to you? What if the circumstances you find yourself in and the people you find yourself around are all for the sake of advancing the gospel? And what if you don't have to do it alone? What if God is able to use what happens to you to inspire others? What if the negative things that you face gave others the courage to face those things too? And what if the only way to overcome our fear of sharing our faith, which we can all relate to, is to just do it and see that God is with us? Our boldness will increase and our fears will leave us. Let's pray. Father, this is the text you've led us to this morning. It's for our church. And I pray, Lord, that anyone who is currently discouraged by tough circumstances might find encouragement in your word this morning, might sense your nearness, your presence, that you have not left them, that they are not alone, And I pray, Lord, that you'd give them eyes to see how your gospel can advance. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give all of us a boldness to share. Lord, bring it to our lips. May we encourage one another in this. May we take each other along in this. May we uh, help each other in this. But, Lord, may we be a church that takes this gospel to whoever you bring it to us. And may we see each other spurring one another along in it too. Now, Lord, may this be Sterling Baptist Church in the future, just like the Roman church, just like the Philippian church, on the streets, taking the gospel to those who need it the most.